Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening, thanks so much for choosing us and putting us on. We're on social media at IT Women's Podcast or you can send us an old-fashioned, old-school email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. We love hearing from you and what you think about our episodes or any suggestions you have for things you'd like us to cover, do get in touch. Now, last week, unfortunately, we lost an incredible Irish woman, Rosemary Smith, the racing driver, died. And we thought this was a good opportunity to replay what was actually a Roisin Meets. Do you remember Roisin Meets? Some of you might remember from 2018. It's a while ago. But the podcast was done back then to mark the occasions of Rosemary's memoir, Driven, which some of you will know was written by my mother, Anne Ingle. So this is an interview with both of them, which talks about Rosemary's incredible career in racing and Amazing tales of rallying across continents, love affairs with the likes of Oliver Reed. And also it turns kind of dark when we talk about how in the depths of despair at one point in her life, Rosemary looked over the edge but decided to turn back and give life another shot. My mum was at her funeral earlier this week. Uh, It was a riot by all accounts. There was a lot of people wearing pink at Rosemary's request and there were lines of vintage cars and Hillman Imps, which is the first racing car she ever drove and they were all beeping their horns to send her off. She was such a character, such a lady, a great company, a legendary Irish woman. And I hope you enjoy this look back at her life and times. I began by asking Rosemary back in 2018 whether she had always wanted to write a book about her life. No, genuinely, I thought about it, but I thought about it over the years. And then I thought, no, nobody would be interested in anything I've done. But you see, you've got to have confidence to even think about it. Now, for a number of years, as you've read in the book, I sort of went down to the depths of depression, not depression as such, but just down. I couldn't go any further down. So then I, Paul Howard got in touch with me about a book he was doing about Tara Brown because I had raced against Tara Brown years ago, and we were chatting away. And then somebody else thought about it, and they said, you really should do your book before you sort of go six feet under. And I thought, well, maybe now I can. I, I sort of got my confidence back and that sort of thing. So I asked Paul whether he would do it, and he said, no, I don't have time, and I'm, you know, contracted to RT, and one thing and another, and Russell Kelly, Carol, Carol whatever. So he said, but I've the very one that he said, I think would be perfect for you to do it because she's in your own age group. So I said, brilliant. I don't like old people anyway, but never mind. I, I, so I, I met this woman yeah. <laughs> and she was just adorable. And that's how it all started, because if I hadn't liked her, 
I couldn't have done no. it. That was the whole point. And I'd say if she hadn't liked you, she couldn't have done it as well. I'm quite sure. Yeah. But yeah. Anne, back to you then. So you met up. I mean, this was out of the blue. Paul had said this to you. Paul, and Paul sent me this um, text message and attached to the text message was an interview that Rosemary had done with Ray Darcy. So I looked at the interview. I said, God, she's some woman. But I didn't take any more notice of it. And um, then... Eventually, Paul said, well, are you interested? I said, interested in what? He said, she wants a story written. You can do it. I said, I haven't ever written a book. How would I be able to do that? And he said, of course, you're the same age. He seemed to think that because we were the same age, that was all that mattered. <laughs> yeah. So he gave me the phone number. I phoned up Rosemary mm-hmm. and we arranged to meet in the Fitzwilliam. And in she came, looking at her gorgeous self, this tall, glamorous woman. I was quite taken aback. And she produces a whole load of photographs of her with Bob Hope and Maureen O'Hara and all these people. And and she talks and she talks and she talks. And I sat and listened. And uh, she said, I want a coffee table book. And But Paul had already put me wise and said, she's going to say she wants a coffee table book. <laughs> but I tell her she can't have one. So I said, oh, no, that's out of the question. I said, you know, <laughs> I didn't know the difference really. But anyway... We arranged to meet after that. She said, I can, I can put, we can meet in the RAC, she said, in Dawson Street. The, R- what the, the, the Royal Irish Automobile Club in Dawson Street because I'm a member there and that's okay. So that's what we did. So every Tuesday at 11 o'clock, we both arrived. Uh, at, On time. Exactly, because that's one of her things and one of my things too. And we proceeded up to the restaurant where we sat and Rosemary talked. I put on a machine and... She talked and talked and talked. And Rosemary, did you enjoy this process? Like, you know, going sometimes, back in time? Sometimes. It depends, again, what sort of mood I was in or what had happened. But, I mean, I knew that because sometimes I was a bit hesitant, even talking. Not that I minded talking about the ups and downs or anything like that, but just to myself, you know, if I didn't feel great or something like that. But on the whole, really. It was good fun. And, you know, I still ring her up now and ask her to come and have coffee with me. So yeah. she must have done something. That's right. a good yeah. sign. Listen, just to let everyone know who doesn't, I mean, just if we can do a bit of a potted history. Your dad taught you how to drive. Is yes. that right? And that's the first sort of driving experience you had. But you were in a whole different career. I mean, you weren't that the best at school. You weren't into school. You didn't get on well with your mother. Um, Not really. You, were, no. you kind of left school at fifteen. So no, I was no. My father made sure I left. Yeah, well, he got you leaving. He was a Methodist, and he wasn't going to have any nun tell him that his daughter was stupid. Which she had said, yeah, yeah, which she had said, but she didn't actually mean I was stupid. Stupid. I was stupid because I wouldn't try even to learn. Because if I can't do something, or you know, I get lazed. Though my eyes would be open, but I'd be sort of gone to sleep behind my eyes. So anyway, my father took exception to this and said, Madam, if you don't think my daughter's any good, I'm taking her away. And he took me out of school that day, which really, I mean, it was so stupid. That was stupid (laughs) because I'd learned nothing up to then anyway, but he should have taken me out of that and put me straight into another school. But mind you, another school mightn't have taken me because I didn't even pass out when it it was out of kindergarten. You know, that's now how bad I was at school. I just didn't like it, and I didn't like you must sit there from nine to twelve and all this sort of carry on. I want to be doing other things, you know. I wanted to be either painting or drawing or playing hockey or playing tennis or doing something. But this just sitting doing nothing—it wasn't for me. <laughs> and then we had one teacher who wasn't a nun, and she would come in in the morning, and she smelt of drink, cigarettes, and cheap perfume, and that just put me off forever. 
And I used to sit there and I'd hold my nose. And then, of course, you know, because I was being very rude, I'd be put outside the door. Just, oh. So you got into dressmaking. You went to the Grafton Academy. Yeah. And, and that, your life took a different turn. It was a very glamorous turn because you started to model and describe yourself as not as kind of shy person. Very. Even though you were this tall, very striking young woman, that didn't didn't mean that you were kind of going around thinking you were the bee's knees. No, I, I because I was so tall and because, you know, I'd been put down so often, you know, it was a cold up there and, you know, the snow on your hair and, you know, this sort of thing. Because my sister, who was beautiful, she was small and dark and long, dark hair. And here I was this tall, skinny blonde. And, you know, it just, if you've no confidence, you've no confidence. And you know, I just, it's taken me years to get the confidence that I have now. I mean, if I'd been asked to do any of these interviews back, you know, even when I was driving, when I was all over the world, I was hopeless. I sort of answered yes, no. And the interviewers used to give up. Oh, this is, is just hopeless, you know. And that, But that's how it was. Mm. I couldn't help it. And it was only after my mother died because... It started, well, when I was going around doing various things, I used to do television shows and, you know, whose baby and what's my line and these things. And if my mother were on the show, and no matter what was said, she would answer for me. And with the result, I just literally, I, I would sit like this and say nothing. And the day she died, which is way back now, it's in the 80s she died, but I just came out of my shell completely. You did the dressing, you became a model, and it was because one of the people uh, asked you to be a navigator. That's how yeah. you first got into the yeah. racing. Yeah. I mean, why did you go for that? Because that was a bit of an unusual thing to be asked to do. No, because my dad raced a little bit, and, you know, he was in the garage business, and I knew about cars, and I, I you know, used to go out to a few things. But, you know, I just, I thought I could drive. I knew I could drive, but it didn't, uh, I didn't realize I was going to be a navigator. So when I started off, and after three miles, I was lost in the outback of Kilkenny somewhere. Yeah. And she, yeah, well, it was. Initially, it was in a farmyard we ended up. And she was so annoyed that, you know, get out. You weren't of a very good navigator. Oh, I'm still not. No, no. It's just that, again, it's just sitting there looking at, at a piece of paper or whatever the case may be. So how did you get the driving thing then? How well, she, that? because she was so annoyed that she, because she only went on rallies because she was married and she had a boyfriend who rallied so she could get to see him. So, that was the, so she didn't, I mean, she could have said after the first time, forget it, don't come back again. But uh, no, she said, fine, well, I'll drive out at the start, then you take it and drive the rest of the rally and then we'll stop down the road and I'll drive into the finish. So when you got behind the wheel of the car and were driving, did you have this instant kind of feeling of, you know, this is this is something I want to do? Yeah. Yeah, But I was in control. I didn't have to speak. I didn't have to sort of interact with people. And she was there to tell me where to go. And that was suited me down to the ground. So I didn't have to talk. But it was all came to light when I uh, smashed her into a wall. And uh, well, she said, you know, it was 3 a.m. thick fog down at the back of Mount Leinster. And she said, we're coming to Crossroads, straight across. So I came to Crossroads, straight across, except it was a T end because we were on the wrong road. We hit it rather hard, and she was sort of scalped. She, oh, she she lived, but she was very badly hurt. She had forty nine stitches around the top of her head. So you know, at that hour in the morning, trying to get help, it was difficult. But wow. oh, no, she actually, we got her, and, and we got her back to hospital eventually. But you know, then after that, she and she was great, and her husband was great because the husband knew she was having this ongoing affair. 
but uh, he at this stage sort of liked me, and he wanted that I go on running. So he came down to the hospital in Carlo, where Delphine was, and she was unconscious, but she had all the stitches around the top of her head. She wasn't going to die, but she'd lost a lot of blood. And he took me home, but when I went out of the car and I got into the passenger seat like this. Shaking. Uh, yeah. Absolutely shaking. Uh, I was grand when it was all happening. I mean, I wasn't grand, but you I were, didn't panic yeah. or anything. But anyway, so then he said, no, 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 you're going to drive home. And it was only from Carlo back to where I lived in Clonny. And I think it took about four and a half hours. And I was going about three miles an hour like this. And he was brilliant. And he... You know, if I was going into the ditch or something, he'd take hold of the steering wheel and, you know, pull it back around. And uh, so went home, covered in blood, mostly Delphine's, not my own. And um, my parents, well, my mother nearly had a canary. And uh, anyway, my dad, very calm, he said, right into the shower, then into bed. And then that was fine. Next morning, got up and he said, right, we're going down to my sister lived in Betty's town at that stage. And uh, got into the car, and again, he said, no, you're driving. And it was a mini. It was very similar to the one that I'd crashed into the wall. And so I drove down, and I was only gone about two or three miles down the road, and I was back to normal again. Right. Absolutely. That yeah. must have stood to you, Rosemary, for the rest of your driving career, because at any time after that you had an accident, <clears throat> you were able to just keep going. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. That must have clicked in. Um, um, you hearing about uh, Rosemary's, you wouldn't have known much about, you can't drive yourself, I know. And time, so, the only uh, driving, the only, <laughs> the only driving anecdote I know about you is when you went for a driving lesson and crashed into the back of a stationary bus. <laughs> I remember that; it's a big memory yeah, of my the childhood. Bus should have stopped at that bus stop. Yeah, okay, that's one way of looking at it. Um, but anyway, you're not a driver. And then, so hearing all of, so then you know, after that, the yes. start, she carries on to have this incredible racing career. And for a, to be a woman, and I know don't to labour that point, but it was so unusual. And what, and what were you like hearing all this stuff? Was it well, kind of amazing? The she was telling me like she was only uh, doing it because she was what they called a dumb blonde. You see, these people were trying to sell cars, Roisin, and she was just uh, an appendage. But then when she. Started started to drive and they realized that she actually had talent and she could beat the men too well her career took off but when she was talking to me when she'd say things like fan belts like talk about eyes glazing over <laughs> and so I would have to go very close and, and be very stupid and ask a very stupid question but she was very patient with me and she would explain things like there was one incident where she was um up at the top of a mountain and Jimmy Greaves came along it was a, well, the um Land of Mexico, yes. Mm. And uh, the, the fan belt was gone and he helped her fix it. But, you know, she'd throw it. Of course, that wasn't the first time I fixed it before myself. I said, what do you mean you fixed it before myself? Yeah, well, we were in Portugal on that rally and the fan belt won. So I took off my stockings, she said, and uh, I fixed, made that into a fan belt. And it was all over the papers. Rosemary takes of her stockings. So the thing was with Rosemary, She'd tell you one thing, but they would knock on to another. She'd never tell you anything like linear or straightforward. You'd have to keep dragging other things out of it. You know, it was, it's and, quite and Going back on the race, and so for you listening to it as someone who completely didn't know, what was the most impressive thing or what were the things that really stood out for you that you were like, oh, my God, I'm talking to a bit of a, I'm talking to a complete legend here. You'd go home maybe and Yeah, I mean, I it. couldn't believe it. You know, sometimes she must be making that up. And I'd go home and I'd look, I'd Google, and I bought lots of books. I have a big stack of books in my house, you know. That, about racing. About racing, <laughs> about which I had never had any idea. And I'd say, she has to be joking. It could be that many miles. But no, there it was all was. And there was her face, you know, 
being in a, a swimming pool on a boat when they had to get the boat from one place to the other. It, I just, I then became really in awe of her. Uh, and I knew we were onto something. Mm. I mean, because after all, I was being paid for this, Roshan. This was a job for me. We had no publisher. Uh, and I was doing it. And I wanted to do a good job. And I said to her, I said to Rosie, well, we do about 40,000 words, Rosemary. And yeah, she said, that's grand. She didn't know the difference either. She, we were the blind leading the blind. She knew about cars. I knew a little bit about writing. And that's the way it went. But when I went to, I said, look, we've got to, this is the story. We've got to get this published. Oh, yes, that would be no problem, says Rosemary, not realizing that it actually is quite a problem. I went to Faith with what I'd got. This yeah. is your agent. This was, uh, came to be our agent. And Lisa Faith Richards. Yes. From the recent agency. But she read what we'd done and she said, yes, yeah, that sounds, she couldn't believe this woman either because she knew nothing about the whole oh. road. Yeah, this is madness. And yeah, I said, well, it's all true. So Rose, uh, Faith said to me, oh, we need about another 20 or 30,000 words. So I went back to Rosemary and she said, oh, yeah, we'll carry on then. And and then she she would tell me more things every time. I was amazed every time I went for these little sessions. It was an hour and a half every week, uh, the, the, the stuff that I got from her, you see, because she wouldn't tell me anything straight up. I had to kind of drag things out of her. No, you did uh, not. I did, I did uh, so. Um, I never stopped. She, she did and talk. Then, you know, then she'd say, she said, when did you get married? And I said, uh, I, I don't know, I think it was 68. I'm not sure. So she comes back and says, you know, you didn't get married till 70, 1970. Oh, really? Well, no, I think, no, I said, I don't think so, because that was the London to Mexico, which was 17,000 miles, 5,000 around Europe and 12,000 around South America and Argentina and, you know, up here, down there. So I don't think I would have had time to have got married in 1970. <laughs> I didn't want to anyway. I yes. really didn't want to get married. Why? Because I didn't like him. Why did you marry him? Uh, because my mother kept telling me not to. And, you know, he's not the right person for you, which she was absolutely right. But if she just shut up and said nothing, you know, I probably wouldn't because I made three appointments to get married, three things. And eventually, the third time, the priest out in Dunboyne, and he said, if you don't turn up today, that's it. I am not even going to contemplate you ever marrying this man. You obviously don't want to. And I said, no, I really don't. But anyway, then it came that um, sometime in August and uh, the morning I was meant to be getting married, I had no dress, I had nothing, no reception, no nothing. And uh, my mother and father, my father came to the outside of the church. My mother didn't. But, you know, I went into uh, town, into Switzerland. And I knew one of the girls in the dress department. I said, quick, 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 I need a dress. And uh, she said, what for? And I said, I'm getting married at 11 or whatever time it was. And she sort of, she thought I was mad anyway. And uh, I bought a green dress and jacket, which I thought was, you know, quite smart because I, I didn't care one way or the other. But I, I never wanted to. And then when we went off on honeymoon, we went with, uh, there were three other couples and ourselves and one spare man who happened to be very into racing and that sort of thing. So most of the time I spent with him. Mum, when you were hearing all this about, because uh, I think you've mentioned your mum a couple of times and it really wasn't a good relationship, but in, in some ways very, well, obviously a mother relationship is very pivotal, and but in different ways perhaps than what we're used to hearing in the kind of chocolate box mother-daughter relationship. What did you make of how much of an influence Rosemary's mother was on uh, you know, what she did, because it sounds like a lot of what you did was in sort of rebellion against her or, you know, that you were constantly fighting against her because you just clashed so much. Well, in, in the beginning, when after Rosemary had finished in the Grafton 
Academy. Her mother went with her into the little business that they ran in South Anne Street. So they worked together on that because she was in a dress in, designer in a dress designing kind of area, yeah. you know, bespoke dresses. And uh, she was, they were good in that kind of thing, but they clashed in personality and it was never going to work. So that she wasn't a support for Rosemary in many ways, I think, Rosemary. No, I, you see, I think, again, she married and after she married, she met this other man. And though, I mean, there were three of us, I often wondered how we ever came to be. But anyway, we came to be. Three children, yeah. yeah. And uh, But I knew it wasn't, I mean, you know, they say, oh, I grew up in a very happy household. I can't say that because there was attention always. And then, you know, my dad would go out to work and then this other man would come in and, you know, and uh, run along children, go away and play in the garden and this sort of thing. And it wasn't nice, you know. I always had this feeling. But anyway, after my dad died, he was the first person around uh, to my mom. And they did marry after that. And I was so delighted they married. But even then, you know, no matter what was said, you know, if I said, uh, oh, we'll go such and such, and say, well, I prefer to go such and such, you know. And it was always like this. And no matter... It, it was just sort of a trait in her that I think she was unhappy. And then, you know, just one thing. And as I say, she would, you know, sort of answer for me any time we went anywhere. You know, she would answer for me. And Do you think that uh, that fact that your home wasn't happy had, had an effect on the, your marriage and your things with other men after that? Well, I think, but even before I married, I was, you know, I'd go and I'd meet somebody and then, get engaged just to show that I could get uh. this particular person. And I kept doing it time and time and time again. Just, I was proving a point, yeah. which, I mean, was ridiculous because I didn't like, there was only one that I really, 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 really fancied. Is that? Uh, oh, no, I'm not telling you who that yes. was. I couldn't get that out of it. <laughs> no, no, well, no, listen, no, no. Um, you mean all the success you had on the racing track, but Mum, one of the things you were, in, and we don't want to minimise, but you were kind of intrigued by these love affairs with famous men. So there was Adam Faith and there was Oliver Reed. So tell us a little bit about that. Mum, what was it like hearing about that? Because these would be people that you would have sort of known about. Well, that, as a, that was one of the things that sold it for me when Paul said, you know, she, she had a thing with Adam Faith. And I said, oh God, I have to meet this woman. Yeah, I mean, Adam Faith was somebody that pop star in our day. That and mm. Rosemary he was here in Ireland touring, and she—I don't know how she was. Well, I said to her, "How did you get him to look at you?" Well, she said, "I was very tall, and he's very small." So, I mean, she stood out in the crowd, and then of course became a groupie. She did. That's what she was. <laughs> and then he said he liked the red hair on women and the Irish women, Irish women with red their red hair, hair and freckles. freckles. Mm-hmm. So I went off and dyed my hair red and yeah, and painted all these freckles all over my nose. Remember the way they used to sprinkle? Yeah, yeah. So, but it didn't suit me at all. I should have stayed as I was, but anyway. Was he like then? Lovely. Oh, he was lovely. He was a nice little man, but he was. And then I had to wear flat shoes. So, you know, I have big feet and then these flat shoes and I was, you know, plodding along on them. But no, he was very nice. But, you know, after leaving him, he he was living in the house that his manageress and her husband lived in, and I was asked to go across. He asked me to go across, and he was in a pantomime, and uh, you know, oh, I was thrilled to bits, and I went across, and then I was we were going to dinner afterwards, and then we were going to go back to this woman Eve 
to her house and I was staying there and so on. And then I thought, yeah, because I thought in those days you got your own room, whatever. And then I discovered that I was meant to be actually in the bed that he was in. And I thought, oops. And uh, I thought, no. And also, you know, I was terribly slim, but I still wore this sort of waspy thing to keep my waist even slimmer. And I had a bright green dress, bright red hair and freckles. So you can imagine the sight I was. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we had the dinner and then went up to bed and because he'd done two uh, pantomimes that day, two shows. So he just fell into bed and fell asleep. So I thought, ooh, what's going to happen when he wakes up in the morning? So I lay on the bed. Oh, no, I, n I never got undressed. And about three o'clock in the morning, I thought, no, 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 this is not for me. And then I got up, crept down the stairs, never thinking about, you know, burglar alarms or anything, out through the door with these bells going all over the place and ran up the road, got a telephone box, no mobiles or anything in those days, and rang my sister who lived in Croydon. And I said, Pamela, help, help, help. So anyway, I got a taxi and went back to stay with her. That was the end of that. Was that was the end of that. Wasn't it? I thought it yeah. wasn't gone for longer, but she got cold feet. Yeah, that's clearly what happened. Mm. <laughs> and what about Oliver Reed then? Yeah, but you see, now, your mother really upset me. I nearly fell out of there over this. Because when I met Oliver Reed, he was single. He was doing a film down in a film, you know, a, a movie. My mum is shaking her head. No, I know she is. I know, but I'm still saying, I'm I am saying. still saying, Roisin, he was not married at the time and his wife was not expecting a baby at the time because I met the directors okay. and one thing and another and he certainly wasn't. But your mother insists he was. Do you not so, think, Rosie, for a minute, that he might have been telling you little porky no, lies? No, no. You, you couldn't believe that Oliver Reed would tell you a woman lies? He wasn't like that when I knew him. <laughs> this was the whole point. It was after he became a hellraiser and he, no, he was a real gentleman. He was a lovely, quiet, very nice guy. He didn't drink all that so much. Where did you meet him? In the Royal Hotel in Bray. And, and you just, did you had a chemistry with him, did you? Oh, he was gorgeous. But then he was going back because he was on the way up now making movies, films. He's going back to his wife who was pregnant. He, no, he was not. I am telling you right now. So now you see, this is you, the one we nearly fell out over. Okay, we won't go for No, now. we won't, no. Did you keep in touch with Oliver Reed? Yeah, I met him in London quite a few times after that. And I met Adam Faith in London a few times right. after because I was based in London quite a lot when I went driving with uh, in the Roots group. And Rosemary, what, just in terms of the racing, what are you most proud of that you've done? Like, what are the things that you, you know, look back and you feel like, wow, I did that? What are the things that stand Stayed out? alive to this ripe old age. Well, that's the proudest thing I did. No, there were a lot. I mean, there was like London, Sydney, London, Mexico, Safari Rally, which, I mean, there's no short rallies Mm. You know, they weren't then. And the safari started in Nairobi. Terrible weather. The worst weather they'd had in so many years. And it went Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night. And finished on the Tuesday morning. And out of, I don't know how many, well over 100. Yeah. But we were told by the people we were driving for that they had these big sort of kangaroo grills on the front. And if anybody got caught in the gumbo mud which was thick, thick mud, that um, just knocked them out of the way. Just drive at them and get them out of the way and you can go on to the next, which we did. So we finished. We were late. We were very late, but we finished. And it was very difficult because 
I don't know whether you've seen gumbo mud in Africa. It's bright pink. You know, it really is normally. But then this particular night, and it was the very last night, and the girl with me, Pauline, and uh, we were driving along, and suddenly I slam on the brakes, and uh, she said, what are you doing? And I said, there's an elephant. Look, a pink elephant, because the elephant had rolled in the mud and then it had dried off, so it was actually pink. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, but there was no elephant, so I said no, no elephant. And then it went on another hour or so later, another slam on the brakes, pink elephant, and poured. Now this was during the night. I mean, it was really, you know, pitch dark. And then suddenly here is these elephants, and then another about two hours later, here was another pink elephant. So this time I said, I'm not going to be fooled. Now I kept going and pouring. Stop! Stop! There's an elephant. <laughs> but you have to remember, Roisin, that. This was day and night, day and night. It wasn't. Yeah. You didn't just stop off in a hotel oh, no. have a nice no, sleep. No, indeed, you didn't. If Rosemary couldn't keep going, she'd let the navigator, you know, take a little while. But she really liked to keep into control. So it was, it was endurance, actual physical endurance. Was well, tremendous. Why, why were you suited to this? Why were you so good at it? I was proving a point. You were proving a point to your mother. No, to myself at this stage. No, no, to myself as well. What was the point? Just that I could do something, that I wasn't just a ditty blonde, you know, with long blonde hair and false eyelashes. And and I used to wear them on, on rallies, big long ones, because when I got very tired and my eyes started to close, then I could see a fringe coming down. So I'd say, wake up again. Uh-huh. So that's why, I mean, it wasn't just because I want to look nice. Okay, well, I need to ask you something then. Yes. If you were called Roger Smith, and you had done all these things, do you think it would have been a different story in terms of what pe- people knowing about you and knowing what you'd done? If you were a man, in other words. Yeah, Roger. Roger was my brother. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a very good driver, but he didn't get the opportunity. Now, you see, in one way, I'm going to go back to this thing being a dizzy blonde, because the man who r- ran the Roots team, his cars weren't very good. I did it privately the first year I ever did it. And this man saw me and he saw the photographers from the magazines, you know, always motoring magazines. And he thought, hmm, my cars aren't winning. So if I have this dumb blonde and she can dangle her legs off the bonnet of one of our cars, at least we get some publicity. And he was the one who did it initially and he thought this would be great. But then the guys who were on the same team they just, they were, cars were, you know, they just weren't fast enough and that sort of thing. But I, because I was in the coup de dame class, you know, and I started winning things. And then they suddenly realized that actually, you know, I wasn't a bad driver. So that's, it went on from there then. Yeah, so. but what I'm saying is, with all the things that you have done up the mm. Khyber Pass, reverse, mm. back ways, this way, that way, all these rallies, Monte Carlo, huge, yeah. huge deals. If you were a man who having an Irish man who had done all that stuff, do you think that the same sort of the idea that some people know you because you say your name and a lot of people do know, but there's a lot of people who never heard of you. I think if you were a man, there's there's no there's probably be a statue to you somewhere on O'Connell <laughs> Street. No, I mean I'm just asking what you think about that because I do think that's the case because no other person in Ireland has done what you've done in terms yeah, of racing. See, Is that am I right? Is no, Paddy Hopkirk. But I mean, he was there. There were a few. Um, no, but do you not? Had you not? Have you not done more than? Anybody yes, else? I have. Right, so I'm saying yeah. that. So here you are. You've done more than any other Irish person in this field. In this, in this incredibly yes. tough field that Mother has said is yes. about endurance and all that thing. So why then? 
what well, do we not? Does everybody not know your name like they know the names of all these athletes and all these other people? Because Sonia Sullivan or whatever else. Yeah, but you see, that, they, they all came later. Mm. I mean, even though I, I'm, I still do. I, I'm still competitive, but it's not that. It's not the same coverage that you see. Yeah. If you have somebody running around a little track, and uh, and I, I mean either driving a racing car or on her feet or whatever. There are cameras going the whole way around. You can't put a camera mm. all over the world. You can do it for, like in, in Mexico, they have their own station. But it didn't then, it didn't get back to Ireland or to England okay. or yeah. something. So there's reasons from that way. But what do you also, think, Mum? Do you think if she was a man that would be a different well, sort of I, legacy that we would know about? Um, possibly. But the thing was, she was driving in the 60s and 70s when there was no social media, there's no internet. So obviously... That the, it didn't get around as yeah, much yeah. as it did, so that would be a thing that was holding her up. What no. about Ronnie Delaney? He only won one medal. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows who yeah, he is. Yeah, but again, because it was the Olympics, and he ran around a little track. Yeah, just just a thing, you know. That and it, it bugs me. I know what you're you're saying, but I wonder what you. bugs you. There was a, a race in Mondello um, during the summer, and there was a certain person. I won't mention her name because it's not fair. And the cameras were out and the photographers were out. And, oh, here she is. And she's racing in this big, big race and all the rest of it. And there was something like 21 cars or something in it. And all I could hear was, and here comes Joe Bloggs or whatever her name was. Joanna Bloggs. <laughs> yeah. Joanna Bloggs. And now, and she's, oh, I think she's going to overtake on this court. Oh, she's going to so I said, yeah, and at the end of the race, there were three cars that were in the lead by about two laps. And I thought, she must be one of these three. And I was very impressed. So I said, where did she finish? She was 11th. Now, that I was annoyed. I said, fizz, or worse to that effect. But they made such a big thing about it. Now, I used to go out in Mondello, and I'd win, I'd, I'd win or be second or third, maybe. Oh, yeah. And in the paper then, the next day would be such and such a race, uh, Widow R. Smith. Mm. R. Smith. R. Smith. So there wasn't a big, no. there wasn't anything no. at the time. No. The fact that you were a woman doing this thing in a very, very male-dominated field wasn't a thing. You're, they didn't care, yeah, basically. Well, we're kind of redressing it all. My mother has written your book, called Driven. And and the thing about the book, and the thing about Rosemary too, she, she, was, she told me all about this racing stuff and, and rallying, which I had to, authenticate but then there's her own personal story in the book as well which they were times when she was telling me some of the stuff that I felt very sorry for because she'd been such a, a had won so many things and been up there you know and then life took you know as it does it deals with unfair blows and the two men in her life had gone and she was without money and it was a really hard time for her and when she was telling me about that I thought that was all very very poignant and had to come into the book so and Rosemary was very open to that because she wanted to tell her whole story her highs and lows and the whole lot and she did she opened up to me and told me all that and um that was a privilege I had and I'm very happy to have written that for her because like that woman that she is she came out of all that and went up again yeah, <laughs> and, that's and, the, why. Yeah. and and the reason I did it really was because there are a lot of people who they feel like I did at one stage, there was no light at the end of the tunnel, none. And I was sitting in a house, no electricity, no anything. The house was going to be taken from me. 
and there was a little fish pond thing out at the back. It was a lovely place. And I'm sitting there freezing cold and I had a dog one side and a dog the other side. And they knew instinctively what I was thinking, that a very easy way out would have been just walk out, go face down in that pool and it would have been all over in a minute or two. And Blackie put her paw up and looked at me, these big sad eyes. Zach, the other side, did the same thing. And they knew what I was thinking. And at that point, I just said, I'm not letting these bastards get to me. I'm just not. <coughs> Excuse me. And from that point on, I said, no, I'm going to fight back. I really am going to fight back. And it took. And that's why I say you've got to keep going under any circumstance. But mum, just you talked about there, you know, that fact that Rosemary went through such a dark time and but pulled herself out of it. So tell us about that. Um, the fact that she sort of rebuilt herself again. And got herself out of what, you know, like she was looking at the pond thinking yeah. I could throw myself in yeah, and that would be it. Of course, she was in such dire straits that she had to go on to what we call the dole. The dole social had, welfare. You know, yeah. she went down to the local centre there and a very nice woman who I think Rosemary's still friendly with today put her on the right road and she had to go into the dole office and she was very embarrassed obviously doing that. But um, she got that money. But it didn't last forever because when she got on her feet a bit more, they took that away from her. But she wasn't happy about that, so she got in touch with Ender. Mm. No, yeah, well, yes. But the other thing was that I, because, you know, of my ripe old age, I thought non-contributory pension because I was way more than I was ever sort of in, in Ireland, basically. And they gave me €104 Euro a week. And then after a while, uh, they've because my married name... And Smith, they're, they're two different names, obviously. But uh, because then they said, oh, you know, you're working, you're self-employed now. So they took it away. So I don't have any pension or anything now. I get no help one way or the other. So, you know, I hope the book makes millions. <laughs> and then I can retire. You, you, you did make a go of the driving school. I mean, that's oh, yeah, that where your name right. is on that. And yes, it was a it great is. idea. It was something yeah. very original, very unique. Yeah, but then, you know, I can't keep getting up at quarter past six in the morning. I mean, I'd be 82 in August, next August. So I think, you know, <clears throat> it's time I retired, don't you? I think you deserve that. And yes. You deserve a bit of a rest. And speaking of that, um, like both of you, I think, are a very good example of this... You know, some people sort of write people off once they get to a certain age and women particularly, there's a sense that people become invisible and that they're not capable of contributing in, in yeah. different ways. Yeah. But you two are kind of examples. And there's so many examples. You're not the only two. Oh, I mean, it's, gosh, it's, a, it's no. such a myth and a stupid no. idea that, you know, yeah, aging means that you can't contribute anymore. Well, I mean, they're, they're talking about changing their retirement age and so on. Because I think and a lot of people I knew through the years, the minute they retired, they had to retire at, say, 65 or something, and they were dead within three years. They were told, having had something that they got up for in the morning and they came home in the evening, that sort of thing. And then suddenly, what am I going to do today? You know, I have a friend now and she's absolutely adorable. She's nothing to do. And I keep saying to her, go and get something, even if it's a few hours in a boutique, you know, um, just to get out and talk to people and be with people. And that's it's very important. Because otherwise, you know, I mean, what do you do, especially if you're living on your own and, you know, you don't have children around you and all that sort of carry on. But they're, they're more and more and more, they're doing articles and programs and so on about women over 50, but they're still all working. 
They're still doing this. They're still accepted. But, I mean, they weren't accepted. And the other thing, if you won't remember this, but in a certain certain jobs, the minute women got married, they had to I know, I was just telling someone about that last were, night. I was telling an English person who, yeah. no, American person who had made me repeat it three times yes. because she actually yes. couldn't get her head around it. Yes. The marriage bar. Yes. And, and Mum, what about you in terms of that sort of positive approach to ageing and the positive contribution people can make? I mean, you've written Driven, which is amazing, considering you never wrote a book in your life. And do you know I got a contact? Somebody else wanted me to do their book. <laughs> You're ch- I might have this a This is an career. exclusive breaking news here. I, I didn't even know this. Yeah, what, what, really? Yeah, Another yeah. ghostwritten book? Facebook. Well, I think that's amazing, considering after you met Rosemary the first time, she went home and Googled how to be a ghostwriter. <laughs> Oh, that for goodness sake. I love it. Rosemary's aware of your inexperience. But um, you've written your own memoir. I mean, currently uh, just finishing editing my memoir. It's just a story from 1939 to 1980. It's a period of... a long time. 40 years, yeah. It's a time when I met your father and... uh, Well, it's time from when I was born and my experience in England and then meeting this wild Irish man... (laughs) marrying him and subsequent happenings and the eight children and just until the time he died and unfortunately he died in 1980 so it's just that story of, a, of an English woman meeting an Irish man and connecting and all the things that happened same way as I did with Rosemary's book I'm going to go to Faith and say mm-hmm. look Faith do you think anybody will want to read this and she's very good she's a great eye she knew we had a story mm-hmm. in Driven uh, so if she says you've got a story I, I will finish it and and look for publication. And Rosemary doesn't read books, but I bet she'll read that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, who knows? Somebody might read it to her. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll get the audio oh, version. Thank goodness that you've reminded me of that. Okay. Driven is out on Audible. Oh. Now, there's some people like myself who are a bit, their eyes are not so great. So to listen to this lovely woman, and she's a, well, I think she's from Rathfarnham, the lady who's reading it, but she sounds a bit like Rosemary. Oh. And it's really great. It's a great listen. Okay. So I was nearly tempted to listen to the whole thing myself. With Even though book. you wrote it. Even though I wrote it. <laughs> um, so what's next for you both? Maybe just what's next is you might take the foot off the accelerator. Well, whatever I'm asked to do, and except I did say to Renault, because I'm an ambassador with them, and they're asking me to go here, there, and elsewhere. But I said, I will not jump naked out of an aeroplane. I will not go and climb Mount Everest, no matter what, you know. There are certain things I will not do, but I'll go anywhere and I'll talk to anybody. And I have a lot of these women's clubs now that are coming on to me and saying would I give a talk to them and that sort of thing, which I enjoy, you know, and go down the country. There's been quite a few of those have come in now and, you know, women's clubs and, you know, but... See, women today, they're so different, Roisin. They're so, they're brilliant. I really admire them tremendously. Uh, You know, the women in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, and they're CEOs of companies, and they're not putting up with any bullshit from anybody. And they will stand the ground. You know, if you look, I mean, whether you like or loathe Theresa May, I mean, she is standing her ground, you know, whatever you think. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon up in Scotland there are so many Angela Merkel, they're heading up their countries. And if we could get rid of Donald Trump now and put a woman in there, <laughs> you know, the world might be a safer place. But they are because they can talk out, they can speak out, they're listened to. Yeah. I mean, we just weren't listened to. And Mum, what about you, advice for people or things that you've learned from your long and varied existence? It'd be 18 August, I have to say. Yes, I will be, Adrian. Thanks for reminding me. Um, (laughs) 
Well, no, I just uh, think that the most important thing for me when you're dealing with life and people is to be tolerant and to look at the other person's point of view. And when you meet somebody and they might not be very nice to you, for example, you must always remember that you don't know what's happened to them that morning in their life. You know, that they, they could have had something bad happen to them. And to just embrace people and try and put as much love out as you can rather than condemning people without thinking about it. Uh, it sounds very trite, but oh, love good. is a very important thing. Love is all you need. Some very love wise people need. once sang. Oh, um, it's been I a pleasure. So much. <laughs> Get away. It's lovely uh, to see your uh, friendship blossom, and you're very different people. Very, very different people. But you found each other at a time when you both needed, in different ways, to kind of Absolutely. get something. Because yeah. for you, Mum, creative creatively doing this project was been, amazing. It's just been such It's been kind of life-changing at this stage of your life, which is interesting. I mean, and the respect that I'm getting mm. from so many people having achieved this, mm. it's just wonderful. And I, it's all down to Rosemary because if she didn't have such a great story, I wouldn't be able to write it. Can you imagine? If everyone goes and buys the book, whether on Audible or in print, they're going to have a great, rollicking, entertaining read of it's a, a life. It's a good read. That's it's what a we good read. It's a good and, read. And it's such an entertaining, interesting life that you led and just incredible. You are an icon. You are a bit of a legend, Rosemary Smith. And Anne Ingle, you're a bit of a legend as well. And um, thank you both very much for coming in and the best of luck with it. And the book Thanks, is called Rosie. Driven and you're both brilliant. Thanks thank a lot. <laughs> that was the indomitable and uncomparable Rosemary Smith there. The book is called Driven and I think it might still be available and would make a very good Christmas present. What a woman. If you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really does make a difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.